today is a day that we celebrate with Christians all over the world. We celebrate today what is the centerpiece of our hope. We celebrate the reality on which Christianity stands or falls. Paul, in one of the earliest letters ever written to Christians, a letter known as 1 Corinthians, wrote that if, if Christ has not been ra- raised, if he's not alive today, in a body that's just as real, just as tangible, touchable, seeable as yours, if Christ has not been raised like that, then our faith is empty. It's vain. It's pointless. Today we are celebrating what should be the reality that helps us wake up and face what every day brings. The fact that in history, in real time, in a real place, a real body that was really dead is now really alive. And we celebrate that fact as much more than just some sort of historical curiosity. It's not like a fact you might learn in your, in your fifth grade social studies class about George Washington. Those facts might be interesting, might be true, but they're detached from your life. The facts that, that we're celebrating this morning, those facts are true. Nothing about your life is the same. These are facts that shape Everything about who you are, everything about what you do with your life. What we're saying is that these facts, these historical realities that a dead man came back to life, didn't just happen for him. It didn't just happen once in the past. Oh, isn't that nice for him? But in happening to him, it also happened for us. Christians believe, and at the heart of our gospel, is that Something that happened to Jesus applies directly to me and to you if we're joined to him in faith. That when he came back from the grave, he came back from the grave as a sign of what would happen to me. As as a part of a process that's now unstoppable, that leads to me living after I've died. That's the claim that we're making. And I just want to meditate on it this morning. We're going to look at one of the most beautiful passages that talks about the resurrection uh, in all the New Testament. It's in Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. It's a, it's a passage that we unpacked in a lot more detail in a sermon series uh, two or three years ago. I don't remember when, but if, if you want more detail that I'm going to give you this morning, you can get it on, in a sermon on this passage uh, from several years ago. This morning, I want to meditate on a couple of the ideas in this passage. I want to focus in on the promise that what happened to Jesus is not just cool for Jesus, but it's something that is happening to us, that we're merely waiting for, that we are identified with what happened to him. I want to meditate on that idea because it's a little bit abstract, and until we really see ourselves in it, we won't be able to hope in Christ's resurrection in the way that we're meant to. I also want to do that in a more personal way than I normally would. So this is the, this is the last Sunday that my family's going to be here for a while. We are leaving actually this evening. Uh, for Cambridge and a sabbatical that our church has given us for, for me to, for our family to rest and connect uh, after several years of ministry and, and for me to spend some time in a, a library there doing some research and chipping away on what might turn into a book, it is a book idea, what might actually turn into a book project, we'll see, that has to do directly with Paul's message in our text this morning and directly to a lot of the things we've considered together in our five years as a congregation. So I want to reflect this morning in a different way than I normally would. 
a way that's less technical and more personal, in a way that's meant to help our hearts engage with the truth of what Paul says. Now, I want to start by reading what he says before we talk about it this morning. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. Well, I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning of verse 19, and then I'm going to read all the way through verse 26. This is the word of the Lord. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is God's word. You can be seated. Did you notice that first fruits image? I wonder if that connected with you. Maybe it was lost on you. We're not an agricultural society anymore. We don't think in terms of crops. Paul's here certainly would have. First fruits image is one of harvest. When the first of something that's been planted, something that's been planted, when the the first stalk comes up and then the the, the first bud appears, or the, the first small version of that potato is growing in the ground, you know that it's bigger than just that one vegetable. That it's a sign of something that's about to come. The reason people in that, those agricultural societies would have taken such hope and such joy in seeing these first fruits is that they knew, okay, we survived. The winter's passed. The planting was done well. We got plenty of rain. We're going to live again this year because the crops are coming. The reason we know it is that the first fruits are in. It's an image of harvest. And we, we don't live in an agricultural society, so not... Uh, some of you do grow crops, but a, a lot of us don't. So it helps me to think more about the changes of spring that I start to notice in my own yard. This idea that what happens to one thing will happen to another. First fruits as the sign of what's coming. In my yard, it's always the daffodils that poke up first. Sometimes even... After a, before a snow. Sometimes the daffodils will even be poking up through the snow. But you know, when those daffodils start peeking through, even when there's snow on the ground, there's more to come. I've never gotten into Groundhog Day. I don't get it. It seems bizarre. It seems like a marketing device of some sort by some sort of uh, Groundhog Lobby. <laughs> I, get, I get excited about spring when I see the daffodils. Because after the daffodils... We know that the grass is going to start turning green and then the trees are going to start budding, flowers, and then the leaves will come and then tulips will sprout and then lilies and irises and so on. The daffodils are the first fruits of spring in my yard, a sign of what's coming next. Now, 
applied to humans, like Paul is doing, instead of just to, to plants, it's a call to identify ourselves with what happened to somebody else. Just as the daffodils mean the tulips are coming, we're supposed to look at what happened to somebody else and see ourselves in it. It has meaning for me. It's a sign of where I'm going. Lately, uh, we've been preparing my family for our oldest son to start school, and we're really struggling with it for all the reasons that some parents struggle with it, for the loss of a sweet season, for the loss of perceived control over his life, for uh, you know the overall approach of an unknown, something new. And parents that are a few years ahead of us down the road have been so encouraging to us. Among the things that have helped us get ready for this transition is, of course, advice about trusting the providence of God. He made your son. He knows your son. He can take care of your son better than you can. That's all been very helpful. But one of the other things that's been helpful is, is the simple observation that kids and parents have been making this transition for hundreds of years. They got through it. We probably will too. What happened to them is a good sign of what's going to happen to us. That's the way Paul's using this first fruits imagery here. He wants us to see and celebrate what happened to Jesus, not just because it was great for Jesus, but because in, it hap- in its happening to Jesus, it will happen to us. It's not just a sign. It's part of one organic process that is unstoppable. It's coming. The crops are coming in. Jesus is the first fruits, but we're with him That's where we're headed. Now, what I want to make sure you notice this morning, we're going to take two steps into this beautiful passage. What I want to make sure you notice this morning is that in order to connect with the the promise that Christ is a first fruits for us, that what happened to him will happen to us, we're identified with what happened to him, Paul starts with another sort of first fruits image. Now, he doesn't use the first fruits word here, but he's doing the exact same thing. Two places in the heart of this text to make his point about Jesus, Paul first makes a point about Adam. Did you notice this when we read it? Look at verse 21 and verse 22. For as by a man came death, there's one kind of first fruits. Adam died as a sign of what happens to everyone else who's in Adam. Adam's death is not just his, it's yours too. It's your parents, your grandparents, your children, and their children. As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. In verse 22, same contrast. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. In other words, let me translate that for you. If you want to connect with the beauty of the promise that in Christ all will be made alive, you first have to start with the darkness of the fact that in Adam all die. That Adam is a first fruits, a sign not of something that happened unfortunately to someone else, but as something that will happen to you. Only by seeing that do we start to connect with the beauty of Christ. Our solidarity with Adam is the key to our solidarity with Christ. And that's one of the major themes that, that I'm interested in studying more uh, over the next month in, in this library and, and kind of chipping away at. It's something that's come up a lot in our sermon series together for the first five years in places I didn't expect it until we got there. It's a theme in John. It was a theme in Isaiah. It was a theme in Hebrews. It's been, it was a major theme in Ecclesiastes this last summer. Certainly a theme here in 1 Corinthians 15. We have to connect with Adam and our human condition, our attachment to him and his death, 
if we really want to deeply connect with and feel our connection to Jesus in his life. And that's a big problem for us, living where we do when we do. We belong to a culture with an intense aversion to honesty about death. And that keeps us from seeing the truth about life, and from seeing the beauty of Jesus. People in other times, in other places, they didn't have this problem. Take French philosopher Blaise Pascal, for example. Some of you guys who are scientists know about him. He was an early scientist, really smart dude. He was also completely death-obsessed. Probably a little unhealthily, actually. You'll know what I'm talking about when you hear what I'm about to read to you. So he kept a running journal of, of his scattered ideas. Think about it like Evernote. Did anybody use Evernote out there? It's great. They didn't pay me to say that, but it's great. Think of it like Evernote, but only with scraps of paper, with whatever he could find, all these bits and pieces of paper. And he sewed them together. Instead of using an iPhone, he had you know, a thread and a needle to attach his ideas together, but it was really similar. He tagged them. He organized them under theme. He would rearrange them. And they've been published ever since. Published right after his death and been published ever since. Several of these notes talk about death and what the fact of death means for life. And none of them are more memorable than, this, than his image for the human condition. What it's like to be us. This isn't going to sound very much like us because we don't think like he did. But this, this is a window into his mind. He imagined our lives as humans, all of us, as lived under a death sentence like condemned prisoners waiting to die. Here's what he imagined. This is a quote. Imagine a number of men in chains, all under sentence of death, some of whom are each day killed in the sight of the others. Those remaining see their own condition and that of their fellows, and looking at each other with grief and despair await their turn. This is an image of the human condition. Whoa, that's dark. That's not what I want bouncing around in my head on Easter. I got eggs to hunt later, right? Most of us are not as morbid as Pascal was, and I think that's probably a good thing in the grand scheme of things. But in another sense, Pascal is pointing to something Paul assumes on his way to Jesus. That when we see others die, we're not seeing something that's happening to them. We are, but not just that. We're also seeing something that will happen to us. You've got to see Adam and the fact that in Adam all die before you see Jesus and the promise that all will be raised. You've got to see yourself, in other words, as one waiting your turn. That doesn't come easy in our culture. When we're confronted with death at all, it's typically the death of the unusual variety, the kind that catches headlines and leads the evening news on your local station or the kind of tragic, too young death to accident on the highway or to disease or to some sort of terrorist attack in recent news. A normal response when you are confronted by a jarring story like that is pity for the person to whom it happened. Maybe a selfish response that's all too common is a kind of relief that it didn't happen to you, didn't happen to your spouse, to your child. But Paul suggests that our relief, if we experience it, is actually a kind of foolishness. Because it is you, ultimately. It is your spouse. What happened to Adam happens to all who are in Adam. 
I think a more realistic way to connect with that truth is to, is to know and love people who, to whom nothing particularly tragic has happened in their long lives but are reaching the, the end of their life because, they, because of age. When you love the elderly, when you look on the elderly not just with pity but with solidarity, when you see yourself in them, it helps to see what Paul means. I used to look with pity on nursing homes and those who had to live there. That changed for me this year uh, when, for unavoidable health reasons, we had to put my grandmother in one. Um, and it was around Christmas time. And she's doing great now. She's adjusted to it. But it was a really hard transition. Hard for her in ways I can't imagine. Hard for all of us. Because we love her. We're identified with her. We see ourselves in her. It was around Christmas time. She, uh, she is one of the most nostalgic people that I know. She's always been that way. She was always the one who would chase us around at any family event, snapping pictures, which the kids hated, and filling her albums and her walls and her shelves with these pictures, always wanting to grab onto the memory and make sure that we don't lose it, right? Let's capture this moment and hold on to it. Deeply loved her family. So her home is always filled with with pictures of really sweet times that are gone. I couldn't help thinking about that when we were helping her get settled. While we were, this had just happened when we were home visiting for the holidays, visiting her in her room. This woman who had a home full of meaning and beauty and joy, now reduced to sharing a room with someone she didn't know, having a bed and a chair and a table big enough for a couple of picture frames, certainly not the home full of them that she had before. Because it was Christmas, I was especially nostalgic myself. I was thinking back on great Christmases I'd enjoyed as a kid. I was watching my kids enjoy Christmas. One of the things that we did was we, we looked through a lot of her old pictures. Um, you know, introducing my little boys to people that are gone now. You know, telling, reminding them of who this person's name was, of who they were to me, what that experience was like that happened around the time that picture was taken came across a picture that I love of my grandparents. And my grandmother and, and her husband, who's now dead, uh, they were about my age, I think, beaming, sitting on the floor in front of their Christmas tree. And that picture just struck me in the context of Christmas and nostalgia and of her transition to a nursing home. During the time that picture was taken, she... Her husband, who she loved and was married to for 50-plus years, was right there, touchable. She could see him and smell him, hear the sound of his laugh. At that time, all four of her children were alive, filling that house with joyful sounds and, and, and games and family memories. Two of the four are now dead. I thought of her in that nursing home, in the bed that she had, thinking about the world represented in that photo that's now, rep- now reduced by time and death to ink and paper and fading memories. And I imagined, she didn't say this, but I imagined wh- how badly she must have wanted to go back to be in that world again. And then I imagined, then it hit me, the photos I'm taking of my children right now, 
this Christmas. Those photos are headed for the same place. They will one day represent for me a world I can't return to. Death does that. As in Adam, all die. Is a a phrase that needs to be drilled into our minds and hearts, into our consciousness, before we're ready to hear the good news. When you feel your connection to the dying, you're ready to feel what Paul says next. We're ready to feel joy in the news that Christ has flipped the script. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now we're ready to see with the eyes of the heart what Paul really wants us to see and to celebrate together. That Christ, Adam is a kind of first fruits. What happened to him happens to us. But Christ is another first fruits. What happened to Christ happens to us. In his death, Jesus didn't look any different than anyone else who's in Adam. It looked like death had swallowed him up. But things are not always as they seem. In his death, Christ was paying a debt owed by every single one of us. A debt owed because we have not given to God the glory that belongs to him. We have stolen it for ourselves. We have lived as if we were the reason for our lives, the sender for the universe. And that statement we've made about God, not important enough to be the center of my life, has got to be set straight. Death had to be paid for. Jesus had to die. It looked like a defeat, but it was his plan. It was on purpose. He died to crush death. And Paul says that in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. By a man has come the resurrection of the dead. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Here's what's coming. Look at the rest of these verses. Here's what's coming, friends. As surely as daffodils mean tulips, mean lilies, mean maple leaves. Look at verses 23 to 26. Each in his own order. An organic process has taken shape. It started already. It started with Jesus. Each in his own order, verse 23 says. Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, all those who are in Christ, they get what he got. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And you know what enemy he has in mind. He is going to crush death once and for all. That's happened, friends. The first fruits are here. The rest, we're just waiting our turn. Paul is forecasting our story here. He's calling us to a solidarity with what happened to Jesus. To see what happened to him, the victory that he won over the grave, and know that whatever may happen to us on the journey, however great the pain of disappointment, of grief, of death itself, we've been there already in Christ. And we're headed where he's gone in Christ. 
What Paul's pointing us to here is a gloriously redeemed version of Pascal's nightmare. Pascal's nightmare is condemned men watching each other go first, waiting your turn. Paul has gloriously redeemed that nightmare and he now presents us as men destined for life, watching Christ go in front of us, now just waiting for our turn. A few years ago, Josh Ivan and I heard a talk by one of our favorite writers, a guy named uh, Walt Wangren. He's a fiction writer, but also a pastor. Wonderfully insightful about the beauty of the gospel. Wonderfully gifted at helping us connect with it. I don't remember any sort of theme of this talk, that it had a theme. I remember it rambling a lot, including a lot of scattered notes that he kept dropping off of his music stand. He wasn't, uh, he was just riffing. But it was wonderful. (laughs) And I've always remembered one particular observation that he made about the power of storytelling to help you live with hope. He noted something that I live with every day. He noted how kids, little kids, love to read the same stories over and over and over again. And we get tired of them. The more they've read them, the more they like them. Because kids aren't big on cliffhangers. The surprise of what happens next isn't really what draws them in. Kids want to enter another world. They want to try it on for size and live in it, walk around in it for a while. Wangren said that this is that the fact that this is how kids are makes stories a powerful tool for ho- helping them to cope with life. Because what kids do is they identify with a character and with what happens to that character. And if that character experiences something hard but comes through it, finds hope on the other side, then that kid is prepared to see himself or herself in that story arc. When that kid encounters something hard, they're prepared to to know, I can come out on the other side of this. It can happen for me too. It strikes me that this is our goal as Christians in community with one another. We are the community gathered around a story. And our goal is to retell that story and to live in the world of that story day in and day out, over and over and over. Because it's through this story, through identifying with its characters, through seeing ourselves in Adam and in all those who have died in him, and ultimately in Jesus, who goes before us as a first fruits. It's in identifying with these characters that we find hope to believe in him. Hope to believe that through him we will pass through death and all of its handmaidens too. We've been through it before. There's no surprises here. We know how this story ends. Father, we can't live, though, in this story unless your Spirit gives us the ability to see the cares of this world that weigh us down in the light of the burden Christ has borne for us and set aside once and for all. We pray to you now that you would help us as individuals to savor this hope this morning and help us as a community to live in this hope together to constantly be telling one another that Christ is risen 
that that means we will rise too. And that means nothing along the way can ever separate us from your love. If you don't help us live in the truth of your word, we won't be able to do it. We know that. We've tried. So help us this morning. Help us tomorrow morning. Help us next Sunday and the next, next month, next year. For every year of life that you give us, help us to walk together in the world that's created by this story with the hope that belongs to all those who are in Christ. We're waiting for you. Come quickly, Jesus. Hold us until you come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.